there are many progressive Muslim thinkers, writers, who want to reform Islam, to have a better interpretation uh, of Islam within Islam. So that kind of thing uh, always make me hopeful. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. everybody this is another episode of the podcast walk talk listen and as usual i'm delighted with uh, today's guest from indonesia and he will introduce himself hi everyone name is andreas harsono i am a researcher for human rights Watch, new york based organization i am in jakarta now and andreas can you tell a little bit in how you got involved with uh, this type of work I was a journalist for a long time, and about 15 years ago, Human Rights Watch was looking for a researcher. Why don't you apply? I did, and I got the job. So changing from long-form journalism to human rights research. And over the last 15 years, what I did was mostly about uh, religious freedom, women's rights, LGBT rights, uh, discrimination against minorities, all together because the rise of political Islam in Indonesia. There are several of us working on Indonesia. I happen to be the only Indonesian citizen, meaning that I am the only one who could easily travel to Indonesia's trouble provinces of West Papua and Papua. Thus, I am also in charge of those two tribal uh, provinces in the eastern side of Indonesia. And what are some of the, the you know, because I, I, I think Human Rights Watch is known to make reports, observations about the situation in different countries specifically. Um, can you maybe tell me, you know, about one of the latest research that you have done or share uh, a project that you're working on? Uh, in March 2021, Human Rights Watch published a report about abusive dress code for women and girls in Indonesia. Basically, it is about discriminatory abusive hijab or jilpa uh, regulation, mandatory jilpa regulation in Indonesia. Uh, since 2001, local government in Muslim majority Indonesia have adopted more than 60 dress codes requiring women and girls to wear 
Islamic attire in state school and government offices. In 2014, the Ministry of Education and Culture issued a national regulation on school uniform that was widely interpreted to require uh, school girls to wear a jilbab. Uh, this document abuses against state state school school girl if they don't wear the required dress code, their hair will be cut protruding uh, out of the the hijab, or their dress will be marked. Demerit uh, system, it will affect you academically, and the constant bullying that schoolgirl and adult woman have to face uh, pressure to wear the the hijab every day. Uh, it also document cases of girl and woman who suffer body dysmorphic disorder, the obsessive focus on a perceived flaw in appearance after being bullied into wearing a jilbab. These regulations in Indonesia are an assault on basic rights to freedom of religion, expression, and privacy, as well as the ability of women to obtain an education, a livelihood, and social benefit. Because without a hijab now, you cannot enter a government building in Indonesia or a school, state school building. We are not talking about private school. We are not talking, we are not talking about Islamic school. We are talking about state school. And this affects about 90% of girls and women living in Indonesia. And that is a lot. We are talking about millions and millions of women. Mm. And, and maybe for our audience who are not uh, too familiar with Indonesia, so... Uh, you know, Indonesia is a country that is uh, accepts multi-religions, and so. But your report found that it has a tendency towards one picking one over over another, right? That's that's the point yes. you're trying to make. Yeah. And yeah. Um, when your report came out, how did the authorities react to your report? They welcome it. They are open to criticism and they knew that it is problematic. Uh, so they issue a regulation that allows girls, state school girls, and female teachers to choose whether they want to wear a hijab or not. So they're quite receptive. The problem is in May 2021, last week, the Supreme Court rejected that new regulation. So we are back to square one now. And, and so what do you think is was the reason that they the 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 court uh, re rejected that that's my first question and then the second is there an uh, are you able to uh, appeal or or will the authorities appeal um, the supreme court there was a petition from west sumatra against mm -hmm. the the government regulation and the court two of the three judges also come from west sumatra 
they have four reasoning. One is it is against the regional autonomy law. The law says that education is part of the regional government, not the central government mandate. And second, it is against the national education law because the education law says that students need to be taught with religious values. And the third, it is against the children protection law. Mm. And the court strangely argued that making girls to wear a hijab is protecting the girls. And the fourth, regarding the mechanism of uh, writing a central government regulation. The court says that this latest regulation, February 2021, is against the law on writing a national regulation. So what do you think is going to happen now? Uh, there are two possibilities for the government. One is they can wait until 90 days after the Supreme Court decision and then revoke the older regulation and, re and make a new one with a similar, more or less similar message, maybe changing a little bit of the languages. And second, they can challenge the Supreme Court ruling. This is a little bit tricky because this is Supreme Court, mm -hmm. but they can challenge their Supreme Court ruling based on technicalities. Uh, you know, not enough input from the government, mm -hmm. no input from the National Commission on Women's Rights, for instance, and it was very fast. The ruling was issued on May 3rd. Today is May 11. Mm -hmm. The verdict is not made online yet. Meanwhile, the judges spent only about a month to make that ruling. Mm. It is extremely fast for a Supreme Court in Indonesia. Not to say that in the past, the Supreme Court usually refused to review uh, this kind of similar setup of regulation. So there is a possibility of making a new regulation. And the second is to appeal, hoping a different panel and a bigger panel within the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court will uh, review it. Yeah. You know, Andreas, um, in, in my, uh, you know, when I talk, um, when I have conversations with people that I invite for you know, to walk with me in person or to walk with me virtually. Um, we often talk actually about religion and spirituality and then especially uh, how the, the next generation is ex experiencing and looking at this. And when I listen to you, and, and because this is concerning, uh, you know, a younger female generation especially, um, what, what the conversation that I had, I've heard that the younger generation is very active. You know, they speak out about climate change, for example, uh, about injustices. So what is what have you seen from the younger generation 
in relation to you know your report and and what you have identified as something that is against uh, you know basic principles of uh, Indonesia? That is a very good question. Uh, there are cases of girl who suffer mental illness, not because of the hijab per se, but because of the constant bullying mm. to wear a hijab. And it is related to link to Islam in this case, that if you don't wear a hijab, you are not a good Muslim girl. If you don't wear a hijab, your father or your brother or your husband will go to hell. So the constant bullying. Mm. There are, I interviewed a girl who hit uh, the mirror, seeing her reflection on the mirror because of the hijab. This is a huge problem mm. in Indonesia, forcing school girl, young girls to wear this long skirt. Not only that, because wearing skirt, because showing, quote unquote, the shape of their bodies are forbidden in the name of Islam. How do they exercise? Mm -hmm. Now the school have invented what it is called rock telana, skirt pen. So you wear a pen under your long skirt. So it limits girls' movement. It limits their ability. And also hijab come with a set of values and you have to adhere of these values. And next, uh, school will be separated between boys and girls. Next, girls will be affected. Girls cannot join more activities, just like boys. Uh, this is a big problem in Indonesia. If it is not solved, and the government tried to solve it, but the Islamist, conservative Muslim, they are against it. Not only Muslim girls. Uh, Non-Muslim girls, Christian, Hindus, local faith believers, they are also forced to wear the hijab. If they don't, basically they will be expelled from school. Mm. So, so, I mean, just for the listeners, again, we're not familiar with Indonesia, but Indonesia was always known to um you know be open to the different uh, religions uh, have religious freedom so um demanding that that all girls from all different backgrounds uh obey to these dress code regulations that's something uh that did not happen before uh in yes. indonesia so you you try with your organization to lift this up my what i still wanted to ask you um, so what are what is the youth doing themselves? Um, are they also protesting? Are they speaking out or is that not possible? What do you see? Uh, there are three types of reaction among girls and women in Indonesia. One is they obey. They thought that this is Islamic teaching. The second is they obey only as a formality. They consider that this is a uniform. When out of school or out of office for the adult woman, they will take off their hijab. 
The third is the rebel, the rebel group. They protest, they do daily resistance, they try to take off the hijab as often as they can inside the classroom. Uh, but the number of this rebel girl is very tiny. And these are the ones that, that are pressured the most. They're the ones that also suffer uh, mental stress because of their resistance. I need to I need to talk a little bit broader about what happened with Indonesia. Yeah. Indonesia is not unlike Indonesia that everyone used to know 20 years ago. It all began after the fall of authoritarian President Soeharto in 1998. Uh, Indonesia has opening a direct election. It is called the largest Muslim democracy in the world. But many Islamist parties are also using the opening to advocate their, their Sharia campaign. Thus, they join election, they won election in, in some areas. Uh, and then they started to introduce Islamic Sharia ordinances, Sharia-inspired ordinances. Unfortunately, there are more than 700 Sharia-inspired ordinances in Indonesia. They discriminate three types of, of citizen. The first is women and girls, mandatory hijab regulation, not allowed to go out at night, curfew against women. And the second group are religious minorities, whether they are non-Muslim minorities, Christian, Hindus, uh, Buddhists, or non-Sunni minorities. Indonesia being a Sunni majority country, uh, also has Shia minorities, Ahmadiyya minorities. They are all Islam, within Islam, but they are discriminated against now. Uh, many Ahmadiyya mosques were closed down. Many Shia uh, villagers are attacked. And also local believers, yeah. ethnic religion. They are also being discriminated against. The third category is LGBT individual. According to an LGBT NGO in Indonesia, there are now 43 anti-LGBT uh, regulation in Indonesia. Uh, a court in Jakarta, for instance, uh, sentenced nine men for being involved in a gay party for until five years in prison. So there are many cases of uh, transgender being raided, uh, their haircut, their long haircut, transgender woman, a gay man being flopped in public for being gay or for having a homosexual relationship. So that is 
what Indonesia is facing, religious intolerance, the rise of fundamentalist Islam in Indonesia. And um, Andreas, I mean, a lot of people would be surprised to to hear because if if you look at, uh, for instance, sustainable development goals that you know basically uh, the whole world have signed up for, you know, seventeen goals to um, get into a world where there is no poverty, no hunger, there is equality. Um, yeah, Indonesia played a role there as well, and and so how, yeah, how does the government uh, deal then with these issues, and and, and um, how how is this possible that this is happening? It is difficult to reach the the goals because you know you cannot leave behind half of your population in trying to to develop. Indonesia is now trying to leave their women, their girls behind, promoting only uh, men, unfortunately, boys and men. Uh, this is a huge problem that the Indonesian government has to face. Uh, many of Indonesian leaders are reluctant to confront the rise of Islamism in Indonesia because it requires a lot of political capital. And if Indonesia is to fail dealing with this, we are going to have a nightmare. Uh, you know, this is the largest Muslim majority country in the world, uh, strategically located on the Strait of Malacca, especially with the rise of China versus the U.S., the West rivalry in Asia. This will be very complicated for, for not only Indonesia, but also Southeast Asia. So... Uh, Andres, what are you um, in? You know, in addition to uh, you know, you you wrote a report. Your organization wrote a report. You raised the issue. Um, what else is there that that you or the organization can do to um, to try to uh, to change the situation? We document uh, human rights abuses. We do. Uh, naming and shaming. We are trying to approach to many government leaders, Muslim, prominent Muslim clerics, telling them the danger of, of ignoring this problem. Uh, we have, well, some people listen, some ministers listen, many narrow-minded judges, Supreme Court, don't listen, ignore it. You know, these this are all step-by-step -step work that we have to do every day. That's what we do.
Um, can I can I go back to you know what you uh, shared in the beginning with our listeners? Is that you know um, twenty years ago, right? If I'm not mistaken, you moved from being a journalist to uh, Human Rights Watch. Uh, why did you make that change? What, what what drove you to make that change? Because of the internet. Because the internet sucked up income from many many media companies. <clears throat> Payment for journalists was in decline. So I thought that there should be new business model to do journalism. I love to do long-form reporting. I do not write day-to-day -day daily stories. Sometimes I do, but mostly I did uh, long-form stories. So according to a study by the Reuters Foundation, there should be new business model to have journalism. Uh, why journalism is needed? Because, you know, journalism and democracy were born together. They should live together and they will die together. So I thought I should find another platform to do this, you know, public service. And according to that Reuters Foundation study, one model is working via NGOs, non-profit organizations, mm. human rights group, environmental group, those that do their own research, that publish their own report. Human rights was is obviously one of them. So I moved from journalism to human rights organization simply because I want to continue doing my research, interviews, long-form reporting, and writing, of course, to, you know, to surface the public mm. with quality information, with quality journalism. And, and has this um, working for Human Rights Watch, has that given you what you expected and what you had hoped for? Oh, absolutely. They provide me with, <clears throat> with time, space, my salaries, of course, uh, to do really, really deep research. Mm. Uh, interviewing this, this girl, this woman, who were abused under the mandatory hijab regulation is not mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of time, uh, patience, because, and teamwork. You know, because I'm a man, uh, we usually have uh, women, female interviewers, to interview mm -hmm. A female a woman victim of sexual violence. So I have to work with my female colleagues to collect the, the data, to talk with sources. It is very satisfying in terms of being able to practice what I had been trained. Very satisfying to work with human rights. Um, you know, I, I know you have done research on many different topics um, and, and the reports. Uh, you know that that uh, for nine years now I've walked 100 miles in a week to raise awareness about hunger and poverty and injustice. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week 
for which course would you walk? I tend to to support uh, minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, uh, gender minorities, women, uh, sexual mi minorities, LGBT. So uh, those kind of groups that I usually try to to support them. Hmm. And and where do you think does that come from? Uh, maybe because I am ethnic Chinese. Uh, ethnic Chinese outside of China and Taiwan, overseas Chinese, the largest one, live in Indonesia. Not in Singapore, not in Canada or the US, obviously. And ethnic Chinese have, have long been discriminated in this part of the world. When I was... I was born in 1965. It was the year of living dangerously. Many people were killed, mm -hmm. including ethnic Chinese. And then we cannot have our free uh, word Chinese name. This, mm -hmm. My parents changed my name from Ong Chiliang to Andrea Sarsono. Uh, we cannot have our Confucian faith. Mm -hmm. We have to convert either to Christianity, Buddhism, or Islam. Uh, we cannot have our, basically our language, uh, Mandarin was banned in Indonesia for three decades. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to be sympathetic, uh, you know, toward minorities because my personal experience. But I decided not to defend only in my secure zone, you know, defending ethnic Chinese, but also defending other minorities, including Muslim minorities in other majority areas. You know, like the Rohingya in Myanmar, they are Muslim minority in Buddhist majority Myanmar or mm -hmm. uh, Uyghur, Muslim minority in China, and also some Muslim minorities within Indonesia itself. Because Indonesia has 34 provinces, four are Christian majority, one Hindu majority, mm -hmm. and five others are 50-50 Christian and Islam uh, composition. So they are also having problems there. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it is nice to to try to help minorities. Mm. Uh, lately also, transgender women, uh, gay men, uh, uh, and also smaller minorities, like the Papuan in West Papua. Mm -hmm. uh, minorities, I, I think my heart is, is going to help the minorities. Is, is your is your um, the work that you do is that dangerous? Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, bullying is is my daily uh, consumption. Online bullying uh, in some bad years, uh, death threat, of course. Or you know the 
the threat of being criminalized is always mm. there. Mm. Now, thank you for sharing that, Andreas. Um, if I would ask you to pick a piece of music or a song that embodies uh, you, so Andrea Sarsono, would you name, would you list? In general, I love YouTube. The Unforgettable Fire, mm. One Bad. That is Sunday, Bloody Sunday, you know. Pride in the name of love. One man in the name of love. It is about Martin Luther King, mm. the, the U.S. civil rights uh, hero. Mm. That kind of music. I began to, my age is more or less, I'm a little bit younger than Bono, D.S. and the others. I began to listen to YouTube when I was in college, meaning that they were also just starting. Mm -hmm. I love this Dublin-based band. I just attended a concert in Singapore uh, where they play uh, 50,000 people for two mm -hmm. days, uh, 100,000. It's nice to, to listen to you. Yeah, talking, you know, about uh, the civil rights movement, uh, because that song of you too was about that. Um, you know, my organization is is uh, celebrating its 75th anniversary uh, this year. And we also take this time to kind of reflect on the past and what we have done uh, well and not. And um, uh, so we are also looking at, have we done, how did we do around racial justice uh, issues? Um, if I ask you to look at the NGO sector as a whole, um, and yes, of course, it's difficult to generalize, but in, uh, I'm asking you anyway, uh, what, what would be the scorecard? You know, what would be the, 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 the grade that you will give the NGO sector in terms of, of uh, racial justice issues? Because for me, it's important, uh, you know, to see what we did well and what we didn't for the now and the future. Oh, I, I love the NGO. I love the civil society organization, just like I love journalism, media organization. Uh, if I have to put a score on NGOs right now, I will definitely say that they are a little bit better than the media. So if the media, let's say, mm -hmm. well, we have quality media like the New York Times, the New Yorker, they should be you know, nine or eight at least. Uh, human rights watch should be on that, on that same level. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course there are also scandalous, sensational media. They should be lower on this scorecard. They are also scandalous uh, sensational NGOs, they, sh they should be lower on the scorecard. But in general, I love them. We need them. We do need the NGOs and the media to sustain our democracy. Without media like the New York Times or CNN, CNBC, the Washington Post, we are still having Mr. Orange at the White House. Hmm. 
And and how how are the newspapers in in uh, Indonesia? It is pretty bad. I will name name newspapers like Tempo or Kompas, uh, Metro TV. They are seeing great challenges. Not only because their income is in decline, one digital disruption, second the pandemic. No companies will advertise during the pandemic, mm-hmm. but also they need to to clean up the mess in their respective newsroom. Homophobia is there in Tempo. Misogyny is there in Compass. Sectarianism is there in Metro TV. Racism is there in whatever news organization in Indonesia. Racism against dark-skinned, curly-haired people. Oh, mm-hmm. the US media will be pale to be compared with Indonesian media. Hmm. Indonesian media is is needing a lot of doing their homework to clean up the masses internally. Andreas, you you've shared a lot of things to worry about, but do you still have hope? You know, what what are you hopeful about? I I still have hope because uh, because I believe in what Martin Luther King said that there are up and downs in our struggle, but the arts of humanity is moving forward. It is going to be better. Uh, dealing with fundamentalist Islam is taking so much energy, very stressful, so many setbacks. But at the same time, there are many progressive Muslim thinkers, writers, who want to reform Islam, to have a better interpretation uh, of Islam, within Islam. So that kind of thing uh, always make me hopeful. My biggest allies here in Indonesia are Muslim thinkers themselves, people like Alisa Wahid, the eldest daughter of the late uh, cleric Abdulman Wahid, former Indonesian president, or thinkers like Ulil Absor Abdallah, again a cleric. Uh, They are my allies and they are very important because Mm. they have weight in their... Their religious uh, leaders themselves, right? That you mentioned. Yes, they are Muslim leaders themselves. Mm. And they're the ones that are Sa'id Agil Siwats, the head of Binatatul Ulam. So I have hope because of the presence of these uh, Muslim leaders, Hmm. women and men. Women and men, not only men. Okay, we're slowly coming to the end of our conversation. any last message or invitation or question for the listeners? We are in a very difficult time because of the internet, because of the digital disruption. Our 
journalism are affected. I think we need to, to understand very well that journalism and democracy were born together in the old times uh, oh. when you know print newspaper was printed in England or Germany. They should live together. They should go along together. If they don't, if one of them die, the other will also die. So we need to keep on supporting uh, journalism, including uh, this podcast, including newspapers. Uh, we need to pay. <laughs> we need to support, uh, you know, stuff like local newspaper mm. uh, in New York, in Amsterdam, in Jakarta. We need to pay them. Mm-hmm. Great. Um no, th- thank you so so much, Andreas. I I I, um, I really would like to invite people to check out, uh, you know, the the website uh, and the link uh, that we will provide in in uh, in the notes of the podcast. Um, yeah, it was such a privilege to uh, you know to uh, to be here with you to listen to your stories. I really hope that your work will continue to improve the lives of of. Uh, many uh, girls and women out there and that we can continue to well that we can go towards a, a world where everyone can live in in freedom and and uh, respect uh, you know the rights of all all people so thank you so much for what you do thank you for, for who you are also thank you Maurice. Prima Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on www.100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And last but not least, I would like to ask your attention to the Ration Challenge as some guests of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, together with me and my wife, will take the ration challenge. And that means we will eat the same rations as a Syrian refugee for a week to raise money and save lives. And by raising money and if you support uh, the ration challenge, you'll bring emergency food, health care and life-saving support to the people who need it most. So if I could ask you for a big favor, I ask you to go to www.rationchallengeusa.com dot org slash walk talk listen then you will find our donation page and if you can support us or at least share the information that would be so great thank you so much www.rationchallengeusa.org slash walk talk listen